What does the Bible say about being a Christian? The first text we're going to look at is John chapter 3, verse 3. The first thing the Bible says is no one is born a Christian, right? We just raised the, um, the scenario where you're born into a, a wonderful Christian family, a wonderful church-going family, and you may think, well, that's great. I'm good to go because this is my family. Or on, on the reverse side, you may say, well, my parents or my brothers, my sisters, my aunts, my uncles, they've never been in church, and so I'm doomed. Well, what does the Bible say? Number one, no one is born a Christian. John chapter three, verse three. So this is the account where uh, the the man Nicodemus, he is he's a Pharisee. He's like a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's like a like a head honcho dude in the Pharisees. And he comes to Jesus at night and he's like, hey, um, what actually do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says this in verse three. Uh, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot or she cannot see the kingdom of God. So the first thing the Bible tells us is that, that no one is born into saving grace. No one emerges from uh, the hospital freshly born, right? You have all the little cries, you have all of the little eating habits because you're brand new and that's just what you do. You're not brought into the world like that. And oh, by the way, oh, it's it's a little Christian boy, congratulations. Or it's like, oh, it's a little heathen girl, congrats. Um, no, they're all heathen, both of them, right? None of them are born Christian. They're cute, they're cuddly, but none of them, none of them are born into saving grace. What Jesus is telling this Pharisee is that you aren't born into saving grace, you're reborn into saving grace. You are actually born dead. You, you have to be reborn. So why does Jesus say this, that we have to be reborn? Well, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, Romans 6.23, for the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus. What Jesus is telling this man is you are born into sin and into death, and you need someone to save you. And so right off the bat, one of the things we have to realize that Jesus is saying, because here's, here's, what ha here's what could have happened. Jesus could have looked at this Pharisee coming and said, hey, as long as you um, live a good life or as long as you adhere to one of the world's religions and be a good person, then you'll get to heaven. So here we have this man named Jesus who is, by the way, the word, and guess what? By the way, the word was with God. And guess what? The word was God. We have God himself saying, if you want to have eternal life, you have to be born again because you're dead. You were born dead and you must be made alive. And so this is God himself saying, the only way to be saved is through what I will do. All right, so the second thing, we cannot choose God's saving grace, we respond to God's saving grace. So let's skip over to John chapter 11. Here Jesus, um, he has this really good friend named Lazarus. And uh, Lazarus is, is dying. And this uh, group of people, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, your friend Lazarus in the other town, he's like straight up on his deathbed. And we need you to come here because we've seen you perform miracles. We know how you work. Uh, maybe some of them think that he is the son of God. Maybe some of them think he's God, but we, we don't really know. All they know for sure is that if Jesus is there, he can maybe fix this problem of Lazarus dying. And so they go to him and, and Jesus is like, okay, well, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll get there. I'm coming. Well, Jesus doesn't get there in time. And Lazarus ends up dying. And so Jesus finally shows up and everyone's like, hey, if you would have been here, then Lazarus wouldn't have died. 
So let's pick up in, in verse 38 of John 11. Then Jesus, this is after he found out that he's dead. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Right, so this good friend of Jesus has been literally dead for four days, and he's at his tomb. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The second point, we cannot choose saving grace. We respond to saving grace. So the first point was the fact that we are born dead. No one is born a Christian. We're born dead, and we're, we're in need of being born again into the faith. Well, here what's happening is we see that there is a dead man, right? And this picture is a picture of us. In our spiritual state, we are Lazarus. We're the dead people in the tomb. And what Jesus is saying is that all of the dead people in the tomb, they need to be raised to life. And so Jesus is teaching us how we get saved or how we became saved. And what happens is Jesus speaks his words of life to us, and we respond to those words of life by getting up and walking in the newness of life. Let's break it down a little bit more. So you have this man, Lazarus. He is dead. What do dead people do? Apparently, they're, they're really big on rotting, right? Like That's their thing, right? Even Martha's like, listen, I love my brother, but he stank. They, they just lay there and they, they rot. They're dead. But Jesus is saying that's not actually just what dead people do. That's what you all do outside of Jesus. And the good news here is that what Jesus is telling us is that there are dead people in the world and yet God sent his son and the words of his son to tell people, get up, don't be dead anymore raise up and walk out of your dead man's tomb. So here's the good news. Jesus gives life to dead people. So for all of us, whether you are coming into this room and you're thinking, you know what, my life is awesome. My family's awesome. The Lord definitely wants me on his team in terms of my spiritual maturity and my winsomeness and my awesomeness. And then maybe there are some of you who are thinking, actually, I honestly just feel like I'm a pretty bad person. I don't feel like my family has it all together. In fact, I feel like honest, like most of the time, no one likes me. I feel like I'm a loser. I have nothing else to bring to the table. The good news for all of us is that the only thing God requires of you to be saved is to be dead. The only thing he requires of any of us is that we are dead and that when Jesus Christ, through the gospel of his word, awakens your heart through the Holy Spirit and tells you to get up, you simply get up. And it's not because you were awesome. It's not because you're not awesome. It's simply because you are a dead person whom Jesus is telling to get up. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. And it doesn't really matter what you will do tomorrow. The only thing God requires of you for salvation is for you to understand that you are a dead person in need of the life of Jesus Christ. Number three, 
What does the Bible say about being a Christian? Becoming a better, nicer version of you isn't the same thing as becoming a Christian. So Matthew chapter 19, let's, let's flesh this out a little bit. Matthew 19, 16 through 30. And behold, a man, and he's a rich man apparently, a rich man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He's talking about like the law of Moses, like the 10 commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What do you still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell all that you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And he said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. One of the things we have to realize, because we are sinners, is that we are always tempted to work our way into God's grace. We're always being tempted to work our way into God's grace, to do the next best thing, to do the next good thing, so God will look down on us in approval and say, look how good and awesome they are. But what Jesus is telling this young man and what he's telling his disciples and by extension us, is that Jesus doesn't actually need, God doesn't actually need our goodness at all. In fact, Jesus is saying, you can't do enough good stuff. All I need you to do when I say follow me is walk and live in light of my goodness. Walk and live in light of the death I will die, in, in light of the resurrection I will have. I'm the thing that will make you right before the Father. Nothing else will do that. And so Jesus is calling them and he's calling us to not just be good people, not to just be a better version of me tomorrow than I was last week, but rather to be like him. He's not just asking us to be nice people. He's asking us to be sacrificial people. He's asking us to love people the way that he loved us. And that often means loving people when they don't deserve to be loved doing the difficult thing of when people don't extend grace to you, turning around and extending the grace you did not receive to them. Why would we ever do something like that? Because Jesus was beaten, he was despised, he was rejected by men, and yet he still died on the cross for people who didn't deserve him. Because that's what the Father had sent him to do, is to gather a people to himself. And so we're not just like Christianity, Christians are not just like nice, good people who get better all the time, they're people who are not focused primarily about themselves. 
right? This is, and, and you know, I'm not like knocking this, but like the whole like self love caring for me thing, like that's good. And you have to do that. I want you to go home and I want you to do some sort of personal hygiene tonight. And then I want you to wake up tomorrow and do more personal hygiene. At a minimum, brush your teeth like a couple times. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about ourselves, but we need to be really careful that what the world is actually trying to sell us is to end up being so focused on me and being the better version of me that I forget that Jesus is actually focused about everyone else. And when he calls me to follow him, he's actually calling me to be focused on everyone else more than I'm focused on me. Becoming an increasingly nicer, better version of you isn't the same thing as being a Christian. Fourth, being a Christian means actively dying to your old self. I feel like a lot of us, and I feel like I grew up in a church full of people who really felt like like claiming Christianity or claiming to be a Christian was just like um, a good religious add-on thing to their normal life. I do think that oftentimes we are tempted and people in our world unregenerate, non-believing people see Christianity as something that they should claim because it's like a good moral thing, like I'm a good Christian person, as simply something they can add on to the way they already live their life, right? Like you go to church, you get saved, and then you just continue on trucking down the road however you were. But in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus seems to be telling us that that couldn't be farther from what is true and right and good. That Christianity or claiming Christianity is, is not you just saying, hey, I'm a believer now, but by the way, I still do all the things that I used to do, and you just need to accept me. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, nor a can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. What Jesus is telling his disciples here in this, in this story about a tree, apparently a good tree that bears good fruit, right? Let's just call it an apple tree. You have an apple tree here and an apple tree here. This one is, is just a good apple tree, right? It does what it's supposed to do. It, it, it brings forth apples. You pick them off, you eat them. But this apple tree, for some reason, is diseased, and all it does is bring like rotten, gross, nasty fruit. And so you pick it off, and it like mushes in your hand, and you're like, ooh, this is disgusting, but I'm still going to try it. And then you put it in your mouth, and the next thing you know, there's like a worm between your teeth, right? What is Jesus telling us in, in this picture? What, what he's saying is there is a type of life that is produced in Christians, in, in believers, in followers of Jesus, that becomes evident in the way that they live. So much so that eventually you will see by the way they live their life, by the fruit of their life, what they actually are at the foundation. Jesus is telling us that if you are really a Christian, there should and will be evidence of that faith. So being a Christian means actively dying to your old self, bearing good fruit, being less like you were last week, not simply because you're trying to be a better version of yourself, but because of the Holy Spirit living inside of you and being active and growing you and stretching you, convicting you of your sin and growing you in Christ likeness. 
So number five, a Christian is a person being progressively made more like Jesus. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is the Apostle Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So here's what the Apostle Paul wants us to know about being a Christian. We can actually die to ourselves, right? The last point was Christians are those who die to themselves, die to the old man, right, and live like Jesus. Well, the Apostle Paul is saying you can do that because Jesus died for you and was raised to life that you might live. And so Paul is saying, actually, if you claim to be a Christian, one of the most immediate evidences of fruit is that you begin to grow. You begin to take on the form of Jesus because if you have died to your sin, Christ now lives in you. And your actions, your thoughts, your behaviors, all of it slowly begins to look like Jesus. And so now I do want to like just be honest with you. There are days that you will look more like Jesus and there are days where you will look less like Jesus, right? We're not talking about a standard of, okay, well, once you get saved, it's all awesome. There are really like bad days. Bad things happen to you. Uh, bad things to happen to people around you. You get sick. There are gonna be days that are just less fruitful than others. Your future spouse is going to say something and it's going to make you aggravated. Or you're going to say something that's really, really dumb and your spouse is going to get upset with you. Or you're going to smart off to your parents and your parents are going to say, listen, I don't care that you're 13. I'm, I'm going to spank you if you say it again. Actually, we're going to go into the front yard and I'm going to spank you in public. Say it again. And then you're walking to your room like, Oh yeah, I'm tough. You know, whatever, mom. What's that? Oh, nothing, mom. I love you. I'm sorry, right? We know you're scared of us. Don't act like you're not. But what Paul is saying here in Galatians 2.20, and it's really important that we understand this, especially on the days that you don't feel like the best Christian, especially on the bad days. There, there are going to be days where you feel like you're really doing this Christianity thing. Right? You've got it all together. This is a good day. You have been a great witness for the gospel. And then the next day, you're going to be like, what happened? Paul is saying, we are free to grow slowly, progressively. We are free to be made more like Jesus because we as real believers in Jesus Christ, we know that sin and death has been conquered by Jesus. As a Christian, even on the very worst of days, your debt has been paid. The worst of days for you your debt has been paid. And so you are set free to not see this as five steps back, but simply a day that needs to be confessed and something that needs to be moved on from. This is not held to my account. Jesus has died for this. I can confess my sin and I can live the next day more like Jesus. And so we don't have to be fearful thinking that our works save us, but we don't have to be fearful thinking that our bad days unsave us. Paul is saying, I can live this way because it's not me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And I can live free knowing that he died for me, he rose again, and in him, I am made right with God. Number six, and we'll, we'll move pretty quick. So Christians are those who are tempted by sin and yet fight their sin. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God 
on the day of his visitation. What Peter is saying is that, listen, as a Christian, sin wages war against you. Sin is always going to be crouching at the door waiting to devour you. There's always going to be temptations to sin no matter what until the day you die and find yourself in heaven with God. But Peter is saying in the midst of those temptations, in the midst of that war, fighting your sin is actually a way that lets you honor God. And your fighting of your sin, it actually points people to Jesus. And so you, you never need to come into this place thinking, okay, well, I got to I gotta wash myself up real good. I gotta look like the best Christian kid because I can't go in there because I know what I did yesterday. I know what I said to my mom two days ago. I know what I was saying about my friend behind their back last week. When you confess your sin and then fight your sin, people are encouraged. They see not you, but Christ in you because nobody wants to walk around confessing the ways that they fell. But when we do confess the ways we fail and then look to Jesus, people are like, man, you know what? I'm actually just like you. And they take encouragement in the fact that you are a sinner and yet you look to Jesus. And then finally, number seven, Christians will be beaten, we will be wounded, and we will even be killed in this life, but we will still be brought all the way home. So the final scripture, Romans chapter eight, verses 18 through 25. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the son of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's Adam, by the way, when he sinned. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we, the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul, what are you saying? Paul is telling us that even on the very worst of days, even as we are beaten, as we are mocked, as we are tempted to question and doubt our faith, even in those moments, our hope in Jesus is actually a sign of true saving faith. What Paul is saying is in the midst of the really bad moments of life, your hope for better things, your hope for things to be made right, is actually a sign of your faith in Jesus. So the faith that you claim to have in Christ is actually seen in your hope for things to be made right, right? When we long for all things to be made good, when we long to be with God forever, it actually stands as a sign of where our eternal hope is. And I think that's really important because it's usually in the midst of our difficult seasons of life when we have the greatest, biggest, like, questions. Whenever you're going through a difficult thing, it's not like, you know what, I just have so much hope in the gospel right now. I mean, usually, I don't know, are you like that? I'm usually throwing a pity party. I'm like, even to the point where sometimes I'm like, you know what, God doesn't even like me. And plus, how could he? I'm awful. No one else likes me. Well, if no one else likes me, that must mean that God doesn't like me. Man, I just wish things were better. I wish other people around me were, were Christians. I wish they had this hope. I wish these people weren't hurting. I wish this country wasn't hurting. I wish people across the world weren't starving or, or dying of dehydration. 
what Paul is actually saying is that when we look around the world and even at ourselves and we see all of the sin and the pain and the hurt around us, when that actually brings us to a state of being heartbroken, that's actually a kind of assurance of faith. And whenever we find ourselves hoping for better things, what Paul would say is, then you need to go and share that hope with other people. Don't just let this be a hope that you have in the midst of difficulty. Go out into a hurting world and share this type of hope.